together, uh, we, we watch the disciples working through the loss of their friend. Um, and, and, you know, they'd already lost him once, right? They'd lost him once to the cross, and, and they, they did not fully understand uh, that he was going to rise again. They had forgotten. They had, they had failed to consider his resurrection. And, and so they suffered great loss, and they felt that once before. But now uh, he spent 40 days with them, hanging out with them, spending time with them, teaching them. And, and he's preparing them for a formal ascension to heaven. I am leaving now. And um, this is not easy for them. They're, this is not easy. Uh, and, and so as he's lifting, as he's literally raising off the earth, and the clouds in the sky are consuming him, okay, uh, they know that this is the last time that they're going to see their Savior and friend this side of eternity. They know that. I, you know, the other day I was uh, spending time with Shepard in bed. I like to lay down with him at night. Now my son, he's six, uh, just about to turn seven. And I was talking to him, and we talk, you know, he asks all kinds of deep questions. He's got deeper questions than I do. Um, he's going to be way smarter than me. I'm scared of that. Um, but he's also very affectionate. If you know Shepard, he's, he's a sensitive kid. He's also very affectionate. And he has a great affection for Christ. He's been saved for about a year now, and, and he's learning what it means to see Christ as a friend. And... Um, The other night he was, if you know Shepard, I mean, this is just how he is, but he takes his pillow and he's hugging it really close. And he says, um, will, I get to, will I get to hug Jesus one day? Which is like, right, this is like silly, right? But see what he understands as a six-year-old, what he gets that we forget is the thing that the disciples felt in this moment. A great longing. To be in the presence of love. See, like, they, they had never known love until they met Jesus, until they put down their nets and they chose to follow him. They'd never known love. They had no comprehension of it. And now that they've tasted and seen of what it means to know Christ... In their minds, there's nothing that can compare. And in many regards, they were absolutely right. And so as he's, he's raising and he's leaving them, they're wondering in remembrance of his love. They're wondering in remembrance of his kindness towards the lost. And all of the experiences that they've experienced with him come flooding back. Wondering at his power over death and the conquering of sin, Wondering at the miracles of his hand, wondering at all that, that, that seemed to be fleeting in this moment, all the things that they thought they were losing. But just as they stood wondering in silence, two angels broke their contemplation, prodding them to get to work at all that Christ had called them to, at all the things that he had left for them. You know, really up to this point, the primary struggle of these young apostles was what they didn't know. They didn't know how to prioritize what Christ was calling them to. They didn't know how. It didn't make sense to them. It didn't fit within their framework of what they understood religious pursuit to be. He was calling them to something different, but they were busy clinging to religious conventions you know, doing what they thought appeared to be spiritual. That's what they were busy doing. And if you read the Gospels, which I highly encourage you to do, you can see them struggling through uh, the appearance of spirituality. They were clinging to misplaced desires. You know, they wanted the kingdom of heaven when the, their reality was the kingdom of God. They were looking for the feeling of spirituality. They were convinced that they had been focused on the right things but all along, Christ was calling them and awakening them to a new economy, a new agenda. I'm fluctuating over here sound-wise, so I'm not sure if you're picking me up. I, I want to know that you're picking me up. Okay. And, uh, and so these angels and Jesus were pointing them towards their greater purpose. And that two, has two parts. It has two parts. Are you with me? So we've talked about this. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. The first thing was the power of the Spirit. 
The power of the Spirit. That was the first thing that they had to reckon. The kingdom of God. The presence of God with them. What did it mean to dwell with Jesus Christ when his, when his physical body wasn't there? What did it mean to be with God and to live with God in the power of God? They were asked to go and wait for that. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait, wait for the promise of the Father, which saith ye, uh, he, ye have heard of me. Jump down to verse 8. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you. That's what they're waiting for. He says, go and wait until I send the power. And this is crucial because the work can't begin without the power. The power has to come. And so they have to reprioritize their lives to stop thinking about the loss of their Savior and start thinking about the arrival of His Spirit. The other thing is the purpose of the gospel itself. What the agenda was becoming. To preach the gospel everywhere to everyone. Chapter 1 verse 8 says, And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. He was calling them to a new purpose. To be a witness, to be a testimony, to be a light, to be a deliverer of the gospel, to be an ambassador to those who are lost. That was their new agenda. This is what they were being pointed to, and it was time for them to surrender to that. And what we looked at last week is how surrender looked, specifically to Peter, who stood up and took charge and said, these are the principles, the principles of the Word of God by which we are going to follow and live. And if we are going to do the things that God has called us to do, having no idea what that was going to look like. There's no way Peter could have anticipated it. He knew one thing. It had to be grounded in the Word of God. And so we looked at that last week. And so we, and we saw the disciples. They appoint a 12th dis- disciple to replace Judas. And then we find ourselves now in Acts chapter 2, where the waiting is happening. They're waiting. They're in the upper room. And they're waiting, just as Christ asked them to do. They're waiting for the arrival of the Spirit. So we'll be looking at the day of Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit. The moment that the power came down and weak people surrendered in order to become powerful agents of the Gospel. This is what we're going to look at. And I need you uh, to bear with me in that there is going to be some doctrinal things that we look at this morning. But, 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 but just as important, we need to recognize how those doctrinal things impact our lives and set us in a position to worship the Lord rightly. So today's ma- message is called um, The Spirit's Coming. The Spirit's Coming. And we're going to talk about all the things that come with the coming of the Spirit. This section of Acts is one of the most misunderstood portions of Scripture. The entire Bible, this is one of the most misunderstood moments. For thousands of years, people have read this story, and they've emphasized the experience rather than the truths within the experience. They focused on the mystical rather than the revelation. That's what they've done. And in so doing, they've pursued, they've set their purpose to pursue the wrong things. Just as the disciples were in danger of doing that, people have determined that they are going to pursue things and they're the wrong things. They immobilize us. They keep us from living the gospel. They put undue pressure on us. And so it's important that we understand what's really happening here. You know, remember we said that Acts is a book of transition. And this chapter is a moment of great transition, the birth of the church. That's what's happening. This morning, we are going to look at the story simply. And we're going to try to consider what it means to us, doctrinally. And we will look to find uh, what was clearly unique to the first century apostles. And then also what we're responsible for as New Testament believers. You understand? Okay, so let's take a look. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. You know, the water bottles are a great picture of the Great Commission, actually. (laughs) Each week, they're multiplying. (laughs) Look at this. 
next week they're gonna have to they're gonna have to build a church. There'll be like a, a small refrigerator up here. Filled with water. Acts chapter two, verse one. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Okay, so let's talk about what Pentecost is. What's Pentecost? Pentecost is a Greek word for a Jewish holiday called the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, okay? Which I'm not Jewish. I've never studied Hebrew. But I listened on Blue Letter Bible a million times to that guy saying the word Shavuot. <laughs> I just listened over and over again so that I wouldn't mess that up for you. This dude's loving me this morning. Okay? So the Feast of Weeks, um, it's, one of the, it's the one of the major feast days as described in Leviticus chapter 23. The Jews, uh, just like at the Feast of Passover, okay, which was 50 days earlier uh, when Christ died, they would migrate to Jerusalem to celebrate in the holy city. That's what they would do. So thousands upon thousands of people are present in Jerusalem this day. They're there. They're there celebrating the Feast of Weeks. Now the Feast of Weeks was a celebration that had two unique but incredibly significant spiritual pictures. Okay? The first thing is the Feast of Weeks celebrated the harvest season. The harvest season. It was a celebration of God's um, creative power. His ability to take the earth and make something out of nothing. His ability to provide for His people. All right? So the, one of the, the, the important things is that the harvest season is about, is about bearing fruit. And so it's a celebration of God bearing fruit among his people. The other thing that it celebrates is the coming of the word of God to the Jewish people. The day of Pentecost, uh, or the week of Pentecost uh, specifically, was a celebration of when Moses received the word of God on Mount Sinai. Okay, why is this relevant? Why is this relevant? You know, we celebrate the day of Pentecost as an idea, as a, as, 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 a, as a Christian idea. And we talk about the day of Pentecost as having great significance to the church, and it does. But I want you to recognize that, that the coming of the Spirit is in good company in terms of celebration here. I think it's incredibly important for us to recognize and, and, and see the significance of the Holy Spirit coming down to earth on a, on a day that it was intended to celebrate the fruit of God's hand and the coming of His Word. See, those things are always interconnected, aren't they? Isn't it true that the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the fruit of God's hand always are related to one another? They impact each other so perfectly. God knew exactly what he was doing. You know, the Spirit of God produces and teaches the Word. It produces it in that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says, The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, wrote the book that you're reading. It wrote that book. So the Word of God and the Spirit of God are directly related to one another. You know, the other thing is that the Spirit of God teaches us the Word of God. John chapter 14, verse 26 says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. It's, the Holy Spirit takes the words of God and reminds us and teaches us and provokes us to live them out. There's a direct connection between the coming of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. There's also a direct connection between fruitfulness and harvest and the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God produces fruitfulness. And if we're talking about fruitfulness, you know, we, we use the word fruit a lot. Uh, it's a very spiritual word. It's a very spiritual metaphor, isn't it? But what does it really mean? It means profit. It means the righteous uh, spiritual byproduct. The thing wrought by God. And there's all kinds of fruit that we can read about in Scripture. There's the fruit of our salvation. There's the fruitfulness of His sealing. There's the fruitfulness of glorifying His name. There's the fruitfulness of the change in our character, isn't there? 
And we can go on and on and on, and we can talk about the byproducts of God working in our life and the fruitfulness that he bears in the lives of those who believe in him. No, 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 no. See, the, the coming of the Spirit here is so perfectly related to the Feast of Weeks, isn't it? See, this day the apostles will discover that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will do just as it has always done. Speak to truth and produce fruit. Speak truth and produce fruit. But the beautiful thing is that he's going he's to live inside them. We don't, we don't even get it. So, so let's look on. What else does this first verse say? It says that they were with one accord and in one place. So they gathered together in one accord. You know, one accord is a phrase uh, used to describe the unity of God's people with one another. True fellowship, one accord. We see the phrase uh, pop up in the New Testament 12 times, one accord. Ten times, it has to do with the unity of God's people and the waiting on His power. The waiting on His work. The resting in Him. Anticipating, expecting Him to do something. God's people coming together in unity. Two times we see it as the unity of the enemy. We see the enemy united against God's people and God's work twice. And the, and the phrase one accord is used. See, one accord, that's God's people putting themselves in a position of rest and peace together. One accord is necessary to the, the church's usefulness. If we are not in one accord, then we will not be used. Key point number one. And I'm going to tie my shoe. Because A, I don't want to embarrass myself. And B, I don't want to embarrass myself, actually. There's not much else to it. If I trip and fall, I will never live that down. Ever. I have a really, no, I'm not going to tell that story. I was going to tell this chair story. For a moment there, I almost told the chair story. Sam in the chair. No. Nope, nope, nope. Because I want Sam to have an opportunity to live it down. So I can't, I can't multiply the story. I can't reproduce dad, it. Sam? Your dad, Sam. Okay. And not you. It's cool. Even though I will retell the story over and over again about how last week you just got up in the middle of <laughs> service and turned around and faced the entire Kyle and just like. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I don't think Thanks I will either. Okay, good. All right. So the key point is this, and this is super important. The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, can't be seen. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm way ahead. I jumped way ahead. I was reading the wrong point. Key point number one, when God's people are united, united. Uh, sorry, am I reading that wrong still? Is it different up there, isn't it? I'll read it from here because it's wrong there. When God's people aren't united, then they have rejected personal peace and profitability. Okay, so let me explain that to you. When, when, when God's people are disunified, when there's disunity in the congregation of believers, when they're not coming together in one accord, then what they're really saying, okay, what they're really saying is that they're not interested in peace. They're not interested in peace for themselves, in their heart, in their lives. And they're not interested in, in garnering the profit of God's kingdom in their life, not being a part of his fruitfulness. They don't want any part of it. Because what we see in the New Testament over and over, especially in Acts, is that when the people are unified, God is at work in their midst. He's bringing them a supernatural peace. He's bringing them a supernatural rest. They're coming together in harmony, and he is using them. God does not use the disunified church, and there's a lot of disunity. There's a lot of disunity. We have to, as Kaya, as a ministry, as a church, MBT, has to be unified, and we need to be unified on the same things that Peter was unified, God's Word. We have to be established on God's Word. We have to come together in one accord. Now let's talk about the unique experience of His coming. 
All right, we don't want to lose track here. What happens here? They're about to experience a supernatural thing. It's a supernatural experience. The coming of the Spirit. God puts on a show here for us in Acts chapter 2. This doesn't look like anything else we see in the entirety of Scripture. Verse 2. So they're all together in one accord, ready, waiting, trusting the Lord. And suddenly, verse 2, there came a sound from heaven as, a, as of a rushing mighty wind. The heavens produce a sound of a mighty rushing wind. Think about that for a moment. You know, the interesting thing about wind is that it's evidenced all around us. You know, we're getting ready to go into fall. And uh, everybody loves fall. People like fall clothing. They like scarves. <laughs> but you forget, you forget that fall is the season of dying. <laughs> and all that means, all fall really means, is in three weeks, you're going to be freezing to death. Amen. Right? <laughs> right? Spring and summer, come on. Um, no, people love fall, but the thing that comes with fall is wind. And, and you know, we can't see wind, but, but we see the evidence of wind, don't we? We see it moving the branches, right? Uh, we see it blowing our hair, right? Beautiful, our locks flowing in the wind, Okay. We see, it, we see the, the byproduct of wind, though we can't see wind. And that's true of a lot of, a lot of the most powerful forces in our universe. You know, they're undetectable by the eye. They're invisible to us. But they're evidenced by their incredible impact on creation. You know, we've never personally seen the Spirit. In fact, the reason He's called Spirit is because He's invisible. That's why he's called the Spirit. We cannot see him with our eye, though his effects can be seen and felt and understood all the time by those who, who follow Jesus Christ. Here's, here's key point number two. The Holy Spirit can't be seen, but is easily known by the outcomes of his incredibly powerful presence. We feel and we know his evidence. You know, on the day of Pentecost, the, the sound of rushing wind is an indication of the Spirit's eagerness to, to come and indwell mankind. Right? The sound of rushing wind implies speed and trajectory, doesn't it? You know, the, the sound of wind is actually produced by the wind passing by other things. Right? The wind doesn't just naturally have sound, by the way. It doesn't just like, it's not like <laughs> just screaming. Right? <laughs> Wind moves through things like a whistle, right? And it passes through branches and through trees and between buildings, and it produces a sound. And it's the sound of its quick movement. And the sound of the mighty rushing wind proves to us the eagerness of the Spirit to indwell mankind. Isn't that exciting? To me, that's exciting. It's the sound of the Spirit's dissension making what was imperceivable to the eye perceivable through the evidence of our other senses. You know, we don't see the Spirit, and sometimes it causes us to doubt. We don't see God at work or the Spirit at work in convicting people's lives, our family members, our friends. So we begin to neglect and forget His power. And it causes us to neglect prayer. It causes us to neglect our focus and belief because we can't see God at work. And, you know, we don't see someone at home laying in bed thinking about God. We don't see the conviction at work. Why? Because it's invisible. It's invisible to us. His work is invisible. But we can see the work of His hand. We can see the evidence of His presence. Some of, of you have evidence even just today. The friend that you've been praying for is present here with us this morning in church. The person that you've been praying for is interested in studying the Bible with you suddenly and what seems like for no reason. God is at work. And while you might not be able to explain it or see His work, 
he's at work. And we have to believe him for it. And when we don't, we actually push aside the buffet of spiritual blessing that God is extending to us. So we see the Spirit coming down. We see the Spirit sounding out. Now we see the Spirit surrounding those who were in the upper room. Look, it says, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. The Spirit invaded the upper room and it surrounded them with His presence. See, this was the day that the Spirit baptized the church. Very misunderstood concept, baptism. This was the day that the Spirit baptized the church. This was the promise that Christ had extended to them. All right, so let's, use, let's do a very basic verse comparison here to get, some, to get some context, can we? Can we do that? Turn one chapter over, verse 5. Okay? Context is crucial. Verse 5. What's it say? Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 5. For, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be, ye being who? Who is he talking to? Specifically, the apostles, correct? Now, we already went over this, but the apostles are a unique and a, spe a special office reserved for those first century men that were the devoted followers of Jesus Christ, those 12, correct? Eventually 13, right? So he's talking to them, and he says, But ye, those of you who are waiting in that upper room, shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So the question is, is this an individual moment in time? Is this a singular experience? Or is this something that we should anticipate day after day in the lives of Christians? You know, there's many people that teach that we ought to be baptized in the Spirit. And what that's code for is speaking in tongues. Now, we're not going to go into to deep s doctrinal study of this, but if you have questions, I want to talk to you. Okay? But what we do is we confuse this momentary experience that Christ promised to his church, the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We confuse that so often with this idea that every time someone gets saved, any time that someone accepts Christ, any time that the Spirit is present, that we should be experiencing the things that they experienced on this singular day, on the day of Pentecost. And it's a misunderstanding and, and, a, and a misinterpretation of what's happening in chapter 2. This is a, a unique experience in time. The baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit coming down and surrounding the, the, the disciples that are waiting there. Is this making sense to you? So baptism of the Spirit has nothing to do with the, the conjuring of incomprehensible sounds. Okay? And I'm not saying that to offend anyone this morning. I'm saying it just very matter-of-factly. We're going to talk about speaking in tongues here in a minute, and I want you to understand that the, 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 the baptism of the Spirit has nothing to do with speaking words or sounds that are incomprehensible. It has nothing to do with exaggerated spiritual experiences. Baptism in the Spirit is a historical event that signified the beginning of God's new economy and the beginning of the church. Now, now at best, this is a binary experience, meaning in Acts chapter 10, we can see God do something similar among the Gentiles. And we'll get there when we get there. Okay, I don't want to jump too far ahead. I want to spoil things. But at best, this is a binary experience. But, but the day of Pentecost is incredibly unique. It's the beginning of the church, and God does something very special here. The next thing that, the, that we see happen, which is a very I, I realized that when I was preparing this, is so hard to describe what's happening in verse 3. It's a very strange thing, right? Suddenly, verse 3, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Now, now listen to me. That is not the, the Spirit of God. Notice it doesn't call those things that hung over the disciples' head the Spirit. Right? This is a visual experience now. And what we're seeing is basically uh, fire. Light, it looks as fire. It doesn't say that it is fire. We'll talk about that in a second. And see, there's these tongues. How good, how good is your imagination, by the way? <laughs> 
I mean, I'm an art teacher. And all I do is like practice imagination. And this is still somewhat difficult to imagine. So there's these cloven tongues. Now the word cloven means split tongue. Okay? And, 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 and it's interesting that it's a split tongue, meaning that the men are, are gi given this gift of multiple languages. Okay? So their tongue is like a split tongue. In other words, they're, they're given this ability. It's a sign of this ability that God's about to give them, that they're going to be able to speak in other languages. And so this, this thing that looks like fire, it doesn't say that it is fire. It looks like fire. There's a little firework going off over the head of the disciples. And it looks and shaped like a tongue that's split. Crazy, don't know what to tell you. It's absolutely insane. But this is what God's word says, and it proves itself to be true to me. Now, what we need to understand is that this is not a reference to the baptism by fire. Okay, we're still, let's talk about baptism by fire for a second. This is not a baptism by fire. And so often we misuse this phraseology because we're not, we're not actually reading God's word. We're not learning God's word. We're not understanding it in its proper context. And so what we have is so many people, maybe with good intentions, who are looking for a spiritual experience. They describe what they want to happen in their lives as a baptism of the Holy Spirit or a baptism by fire, and they don't know what they're talking about. Let's, let's see what God's word says. Luke chapter 3, verse 16 is a very clear description. And what John the Baptist is doing here is he's saying that one day people are going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Well, okay, now we're seeing that happen, right? And then he describes for us another thing that Jesus does, which he refers to as the baptism of, this, of, the, of fire. Okay, look, Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John answered, John the Baptist answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water. Right? We already covered that. I think that's week one, week two of the series. I, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, meaning Jesus, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Well, what does that mean? Okay, all you have to do is read verse 17. Shall we do that? Colon. Yeah? You guys know what, you know what punctuation is, right? Colon, let me describe it for you. Whose fan is in his hand? Has anybody in the Bo ever been in the Boy Scouts? Boy Scouts, anybody in here? Okay. Yeah, there you go, man. Don't know what that means, but I'm with you, brother. <laughs> Boy Scouts honor. Now, you learn how to build fires anywhere and everywhere, right? In the Boy Scouts. Do you do that in the Girl Scouts? I don't know. Girl Scouts? Any Girl Scouts? You make fires? I thought you sold cookies. I thought you sold cookies. That too. Okay, but, but, but what's important to building a fire? You need oxygen, you need air. And so what people do is they blow on the fire when they're trying to stimulate air passing through. So what does it say? Goodness gracious, Jesus is going to come and he's going to have a fan in his hand. And he will truly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's not what's happening here in chapter 2, is it? Now, what this is referenced to is, is what we see happening in Revelation chapter 20, where Jesus Christ comes to judge all those who refused him. That's what's happening. So listen to me. Lesson for the day. You don't want the baptism by fire. Agreed? No, this is, this is a sign. The cloven tongue, like as by fire, like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. This is a sign for them of what God's about to do in verse 4. So here we see the unique manifestation. We've been looking at, we've been looking at the unique experience of His coming. Now that we've described that, let's talk about the unique manifestation of His coming. They were all filled. That's the first thing. That's the important thing that we need to know. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost entered into their lives. This is the aspect that separates the church from other believers throughout the history of mankind. From this moment on, the Holy Ghost, Ghost dwells inside of, of Christians. Let me get another drink. For the remainder of the New Testament church, 
Those who find forgiveness in Jesus and call upon the name of Christ, those who are saved from their sin, are gifted with the Holy Spirit. And so here's, this is a really important point to make to you. Are, you. are you saved? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Was there a moment in your life where you decided that you were going to call upon Jesus Christ for His forgiving power and, 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 and not just save you from your sin, but that you'll make Him Lord of your life, that, he, that He's master over your life? Has that ever happened for you? If it has, the Holy Spirit indwells you and is empowering you and is provoking you to righteous living. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, this is how Paul justifies this statement. What, know ye not? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? So declaring to us that our bodies, our physical bodies, are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And we don't belong to us. We belong to Him. This, this is what it means to be peculiar. The fact that our bodies are indwelled by the third person of the triune God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we, are, we have the ability to live and be the impossible. The impossible. Key point. The Holy Spirit is our gracious gift to execute the mission in power. That's what it is. And the Holy Spirit is our gracious gift to execute the mission in power. And on the day of Pentecost, what we see is that looks like speaking in tongues. Now, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. We see in Acts, God used this moment to bestow miraculous gifts upon his apostles. So they perform acts that demand the attention of the lost around them. Verse 4, and began, they began, after they were filled, they began to speak with other tongues. As the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, of every nation under heaven. Okay, so there's people, remember we talked about this, it's the Feast of Weeks, there's people from all over who've migrated to Jerusalem, the holy city, and they're there in their presence, and they speak all different tongues, which means languages, right? Yeah, so tongues is the, is the Bible's word for languages. Got it? Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together, there was a crowd beginning to gather and they were confounded, the people were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Okay, so the question is, aren't these men all from Galilee? Aren't these unlearned men all from one region? How is it that this group of individuals is speaking in so many foreign tongues so fluently? What is going on here? They're hearing all these languages being spoken. Now, let's not forget that what is it that they're speaking? They're speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they're speaking, and they're speaking it in foreign languages. And they say, and how hear we every man in our own tongue? Everybody is hearing their own language. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia, and in Judea, and Cappadocia, in, in Pontus, in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt, and the parts of Libya, about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselyte, uh, proselytes. Proselytes. Good. I said it right. Dry mouth. I burnt my tongue on the coffee this morning. You done that before? When you're speaking, it's not good. So all of these individuals, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt. And the only explanation that they could come up with is that these men were drunk. 
right? Saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking say, these men are full of new wine. Now you can understand for people who aren't prepared for such a crazy thing to happen that they might confuse this with, with drunkenness. I mean, when I hear other languages being spoken, to me it sounds crazy. It really does. I was walking through the parking lot uh, yesterday after um, uh, Shepherd soccer game, and there was a, a Spanish-speaking family that was walking near me, and they're all speaking to each other in Spanish. And this story came to mind, and I was thinking to myself, like, I took, I took four semesters of Spanish, and to me it still just sounds like gobbledygook. <laughs> it just makes, like, I'm working real hard, and, like, I wonder if I can pick out a word here. No. <laughs> It, it, it wasn't happening for me. It wasn't happening. And, and you know what? So these people were confusing it, confusing all of these different languages that they were hearing with men that were drunk. Now, let's, let's pay very close attention here. We cannot neglect the fact that these men were speaking in foreign languages. Okay? How is it that we justify speaking in tongues today in a contemporaneous setting? when it doesn't sound like foreign languages? Is that a fair question to ask? When it doesn't sound like the languages of all of the nations of the earth, and it sounds like something that no one else can understand? And then what we do is that we misuse the scriptures, and we say, well, they're the tongues of angels. But every time we hear the angels speak all throughout the scriptures, that they're speaking the language of men, So we have to face the fact that today in a contemporaneous setting, a lot of times when people are speaking about tongues, that they're speaking about something different than what Scripture says about it. And I know that that's probably really controversial to some of you in this room. And if you want to talk about it more, I'm available. I want to talk to you about it. But we've got to understand what God's Word says. It's very words. And I think at best, for some of us, maybe this just causes us to pose some questions. And here's some, here's some questions. What is tongues? And let's, I'm just going to put it up on the, on the board here. Tongues was the special gifting to men of the ability to speak, clear, clearly speak, a foreign language for which they never learned. What else was tongues? Tongues was the evidence of God's divine involvement in the message of the apostles. So it's a unique gift. In this moment. And it was to prove God's divine involvement in their message. Tongues was the, also the delivery of truth to those who would never have, had ever heard it so that they might receive it. People, that the language barrier of these men would have been a problem. It would have prevented them from speaking truth to these people from all these different nationalities and regions. It would have been a hurdle for them. Language would have been a hurdle. And God clears that hurdle for them. What's, let's talk about what tongues is not. Tongues is not evidence of salvation. It's not a sign of the filling of the Spirit. You know, the disciples were not seeking to speak in tongues, were they? But so many people in Christianity today are being told that if they don't speak in tongues, then there is no evidence of their salvation and that they're lesser than until they do. The disciples weren't seeking that. This was a unique experience. It was never an emphasis for the apostles anywhere. Anywhere in the scriptures is this an emphasis. You don't see it in their letters. And in fact, we only see it twice in, in, in the book of Acts. We only see speaking in tongues twice. It's not an emphasis. The only other time it's spoken of is in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This is not a point of emphasis for the apostles. It was not a common experience. Tongues was never a common experience. And then lastly, what I put up there. Did I cover all that? Yeah, okay, good. You know, the Holy Spirit fills men repeatedly in Acts. You know, that's, that's a really important thing to understand is that the Holy Spirit fills men in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, verse 31, chapter 5, 3, 6, 5, 7, 55, 9, 17, 11, 24, and 13, 52. And none of those times those people are filled with the, the Spirit do they ever speak in tongues. 
Okay, are you with me? Okay, is anybody angry at me? Wait, we'll save that. Okay, so let's, in the last few moments that we have together, okay, I've talked a lot about doctrine. I've talked a lot about this experience. I've talked a lot about the manifestation of this experience. Okay, but I want you to understand something very important, and this is the part that's probably the most pointed for us as New Testament Christians. Are you ready? Jump to verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Okay? Here's the point. The Holy Spirit living inside of us produces boldness like that we could never have without it. It makes us stand up and lift our voice. Peter, he stands up, it says, he lifted up his voice. You know, because of our neglect of the Holy Spirit, there's many of us who fail to lift up our voice. You know, we might be saved. We might know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But we've never used God's Word to cultivate the Spirit's activity in our life. We don't even know what God's Word says. And so what, we, what happens is, is, is because we don't know God's Word, we fail to understand what the Spirit's role is. And what happens is pretty soon our faith dwindles and, and, the, and we don't engage the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't hear His voice telling us, speak. Call out, cry out, speak. And many of us on a daily basis fail to speak the gospel because we have so severed ourselves from the work of the Spirit in our life that we're left alone and isolated, and we might refer to ourselves as Christians, but really if we're going to talk about it in terms of what Kenny said this morning, we are not disciples of Jesus Christ. You know, we can use the, the, the Gospels to talk about the cost of discipleship, and we can use the Gospels to define for us what a disciple is, but the truth is the disciples weren't really the disciples until the Spirit filled them. They didn't have the power to be the disciples until the Spirit filled them. See, we are power-filled disciples. And our responsibility is to let the Spirit speak to us and to, and to lift up our voice and to speak the gospel to every creature and to live the Great Commission in the power of the Holy Spirit. And some of us, we're failing to do that. We're failing to do that. And there's many, many reasons. There's many, many reasons why that's happening for you. You've neglected prayer. You've failed to be invested in the Word of God. And those are two big ones. And we need to ask ourselves seriously, especially going into the school year, is the Holy Spirit working in my life? And if he is, the evidence is going to be you lifting up your voice, speaking out in your classroom, speaking out among your peers, among your friends at work, to family members. No one's telling you to be a... Look, hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. No one's telling you to ramrod the gospel down someone's throat. What we're saying is, listen to the Holy Spirit and be bent to lift up your voice. Peter, look, if we know one thing about Peter, is the man does not care about his reputation I mean, he just doesn't. And so what he does is he chooses to lift his voice among the 11 and be unique even among the 11. And what a great testimony that is for us to not fear and to speak truth. But for some of us today, as we have the worship team come up um, and, we, and we close with an invitation, I, wa I want to ask you a very specific question. Are you ready? If the Holy Spirit was calling you to speak, would you even know what to say? Do you understand what God's Word says? 
Do you know how to give the gospel? Do you know how to share your faith? Do you know how to explain to people basic doctrinal principles that Christians have lived by for thousands of years now? Or are you a nominal Christian? If you know that it's time to learn more of what God's word so that you can give an answer to every man who asks of you the joy that's in you, then it's time for you to sign up for discipleship. It's, it's time to be called to something greater. It's time for you to determine that you're going to learn God's word. Some of you need to just determine that you're going to be members here at MBT and you're going to plug in so that people can invest truth in you. Yes. Are you hearing this? Yes. What is God calling you to? Do you know the message? Can you lift up your voice? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. And I pray, um, Lord, that, that everything that I shared today, um, the Lord, that it would have pertinence in the life of the people in this room. That there would be value, that, that people would be called to struggle with their doctrinal positions. Uh, that people would be called to struggle with whether or not they actually are living empowered and in control by your Spirit. Lord, that people would be challenged in their heart. Do they even know what they would proclaim if, they're, if you called them to lift their voice? So many of us are so fearful because we don't have answers. And your word is so plain. And, and so, God, I just pray that you would show us Lord, what it means to know you and your word more intimately. God, we, we won't ever replicate this side, this side of eternity. We won't ever replicate what's happening here in the day of Pentecost. But what is common to all men that's happening here at the day of Pentecost, what's common to all believers, is that we ought to speak of the truth of your Son, Jesus Christ. That we are obligated to speak out, to share what Jesus Christ has done for us. That is what's common in this story. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to better understand Acts, but, Lord, that we would better understand what our responsibility is, is in, in, in surrender to your Spirit and into the purpose of your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.